afternoon, everybody. How are you doing, beautiful people? This is Steve Horney. I'm coming to you from my couch, and so is Peter from his chair, and we would like to welcome you to Diet. This is the most exciting conversation I think that we have. I don't know, maybe that makes me a nerd, or maybe I just understand the importance. Regardless, we're going to be talking a lot about diet. We're going to be talking a little bit about COVID. You're going to have some chance to ask some questions, but Really, this is where it all starts. Like if I could correct one thing in everyone, I think that it would perhaps be the way that they digest food. And notice, we just started talking about digestion. You cannot talk about diet without talking about digestion first. So let's get into the presentation. So this is me. By now, most of you all know me. I'm a physical therapist, but I like to think of myself as looking at things very holistically now at this point. That's because of the guy to my left. Um, I used to just treat, chase pain, if you will. Someone's shoulder was bothering them. I'd work on their shoulder. Then maybe I would, you know, start to look at the whole body as a whole musculoskeletally. But now I would say I think I do a pretty good job, again, thanks to this guy, at looking at the body as the whole, looking at diet, digestion, sleep, stress, exercise, everything all together. And to me, I think that that's the only way to practice, but it's really challenging. That's why we put on webinars like this. That's why we teach courses like this, to help people understand their body just a little bit better. So just so you understand what this system is, we are talking about our foundations of health today. That's on the bottom of the pyramid. Your foundations of health are your hydration, diet, sleep, stress, exercise, ergonomics, breathing, and connection. On top of that is your movement. Again, that's making sure that you have the prerequisite ranges of motion and strength to be able to do exercise. Exercise is the ability to produce force. Performance is the ability to produce that force rapidly and for a long duration of time. Here's everything that we talked about. Again, these are all the courses that we teach. Feel free to drop in on any of them. Get on our mailing list if you want to know about them. And this is Peter DeQuino, my man. All right. Thanks. Uh, hey, everybody. I'm Peter DeQuino. Um, probably most of you know me, I hope. Uh, anyway, if you tuned into any of our other seminars or webinars, you already have seen this. Sorry if I'm repeating myself, but basically uh, I'm an acupuncturist. Herbal medicine is a big part of my practice. I do a lot of orthopedics. But one thing a lot of people don't realize a lot of my patients don't realize that I do a lot with my patients with diet and holistic health too, because I do get pigeonholed a little bit as an orthopedic medicine guy, which is, you know, fine. I love it, but I really also do love getting into the more holistic end. In some ways, Steve probably is more into holistic health than I am even, it's pretty impressive. So I think it's pretty great for other practitioners of other areas to also start embracing the holistic health aspects. So I couldn't think that's better. Um, so, you know, this is my background, you've seen it, there it is. Um, so yeah, the big story that we always say, Steve and I met as he came to me as a patient and he just taught me a huge side of what I was missing. Steve has uh, what I would call an abundance mentality where he really is opposing to a scarcity mentality, which a lot of other therapists seem to have 
where people are fighting for things and competitive. Steve has this abundance mentality where he's about sharing, being open, and learning from others, which I really now have integrated. And I'm trying to learn from all kinds of people, other practitioners, not just acupuncturists, and just like Steve's learning from people who aren't just PTs in a big way. I mean, we were just talking about learning about functional medicine this morning, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's 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 gonna happen. It's like right now I'm doing all this data collection and I know I'll choose a path and go down it, but it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I sprained my ankle, got into sports rehab because I wanted to tape ankles. And now I feel like no, perhaps because I think I've evolved that practice to a point where I'm comfortable with it. I'm always like, oh, what's the next one that I'm going to get into? Right. Well, anyway, so we met up and Steve really was the guy who came up with this class in, in the big way and really came up with the idea of putting together the foundations of health. And, you know, it, a big part of it came out of the idea that he was saying a lot of the same things to patients and trying to get more to the root of patients' issues. And so this list is pretty much an amalgamation of things that we both feel are fundamental. Uh, I mean, I can't say anything more on that, but Steve, if you want to mention anything more about the foundations before I move on. No, that's it. It really was just born of the conversations that I was sick and tired of having over and over and over. Right. will come to me for their shoulder. I knew that they wanted me to look at their shoulder, but I knew that we had to talk about their diet and general inflammatory processes and ergonomics and exercise just in general and stress reduction. And, and just from getting tired of all of that, I started to put stuff up on our website so I could just link them to it. And then from meeting you, then it was the, oh, you know a lot more about this than I do because you people actually come to you to talk about it. So then it was just this growing evolution of what that could look like. And I think it's turned into a really remarkable uh, course series and knowledge base that you and I have combined our heads together. Yeah, I mean, just to even a, before we even get into the diet stuff, just as even a quick case study, um, about diet, I was treating a lot of people in the beginning as, like you said, just like shoulder injuries and things like that. And I would notice that people would have, would come in with like multiple areas, not just their shoulder, but like other areas are all inflamed. And I'd realize, oh, so this isn't just they're moving badly, right? They're, they're inflamed for other reasons. Yeah, maybe they're not sleeping well, but What's like the biggest thing that's going to drive inflammation? Yeah, diet for sure. Um, and that's when I'm really putting together that I can't just look at people's shoulders or knees and things like that. If someone's coming in, especially with like inflamed tendons or ligaments, you know, joints that are constantly getting, uh, you know, inflamed, that's a real red flag that their diet needs to be looked at. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I'm probably one of those patients that you're talking about. I mean, a lot of people maybe only know me now, but I used to be about 30 pounds heavier. And Peter, when I was his patient, remember that's how we met, we right. were chasing pain, I feel like. If you feel like you're chasing pain, that's right. what this course is all about. Um, right. Me, the first thing that I did was I switched off of um, – I switched off of beer and switched to wine, just seeing if maybe that played something. And it did. I lost like five pounds and just found a little that I felt a little bit better. And I was kind of like, wait a minute, let me just 
let me just see if maybe, whoa, right. mind blown, the things that I'm putting into my mouth to eat are actually perhaps part of this problem. So it was from there. So it was first thing I did was I switched from beer to wine. The next thing that I did was I just looked and saw what my processed carbohydrates and bread and gluten intake kind of look like. Right. And once I did that, and I, I was just like, I'm not going to cut it, but let me just go down to one time a day. Again, like five plus more pounds came off. So I'm like, all right, well, that's wow. something too. And I didn't feel like the calories were necessarily changing all that much. It was just like almost like a bloating in my body just kind of started like, started to go down. And then after that, I was like, you know what? Let me just see if I only have meat one time a day. And another five to seven pounds came off. And then I really started to go through that process of looking into what I was eating, how I was feeling, my resting body weight, and then the pain in my shoulder and the pain in my neck and then the pain in my back. And that was actually when I stopped seeing you. Not that the needles weren't effective, but for yeah. me, I think that it was the health coaching that was as important. And you were so kind in guiding me through that path without making me feel pressured towards it. And so for that, I'm incredibly grateful. So that's, that's kind of how that goes. Yeah. One other thing I'll just add to that is like, uh, I noticed early on as well that, you know, people focus on their number on their scale, which is fine. I mean, I'm not a big fan of patients getting on the scale too much, but weight comes in different varieties. And People just tend to look at weight as if it's just only fat coming off your body. But one other thing that comes off your body is what you said is inflammation. And that could come in the, you know, in weight on the scale, but sometimes it's more aesthetic. You'll see people's joints getting like leaner or thinner, just not as puffy. Like I've seen people's ankles a lot less puffy areas are getting thinner, but it's not just fat adipose tissue, it's it's inflammation. So, you know, that's another area I think people should think about that you're not just losing fat, you could lose inflammation, which isn't really talked about very much. Huge for anyway. me, for sure. So, yeah, yeah, you could lose inflammation. So anyway, so that's that's the, uh, the eight foundations. So we can't go into uh, a talk about diet without of course, addressing the COVID-19 situation. And, you know, in some respects, just having a good diet and following the latter half of the webinar, which is just about diet, is probably enough. But there are some little details that we can go into how to like tailor it a little bit more to what's going on right now. And also just look at what the research is telling us about what's going on now with the virus and how massive a role uh, your health and particularly diet plays, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit is getting unfortunately swept under the rug when you watch a lot of popular media. And I'm not going to just say all media or, or, or news is bad. There's plenty of great news out there, but I don't see the important part of what we need to be focused, focusing on, getting focused on in the news. And so I'm going to look at that a little bit. So let's move on to something silly.
<laughs> we do take our health seriously. We wear masks and gloves. You had a cupcake and Mountain Dew for breakfast. <laughs> it's a, I don't know who these people are, but they come up a lot on the internet. <laughs> um, so it's true. I mean, I saw a guy this morning wearing a mask, taking off his mask and smoking. Yeah, go figure. You know, there's lots of good scenes around, but for sure, wearing a mask and gloves is not the ideal protection, especially if you're eating a lousy diet. Diet is such a major part of this. And if we look at this study, take the studies done here in New York City, uh, factors associated with hospitalization amongst 4,000 patients <clears throat> with COVID-19. You see the statistics down below in red, I mark cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and obesity. They're huge. Age and comorbidities are powerful predictors <clears throat> of hospitalization. And I think comorbidities are starting to overtake age in some respects uh, in terms of the outcomes and just how the incidence of people being going into hospitals. So it's, it's huge. Cardiovascular disease, obesity are really big numbers there if you see. Um, another thing that isn't getting talked about and definitely isn't being told to you when you go to Walgreens to get a vaccine is that obesity is a factor to, a factor to increase the likelihood of a poor vaccine outcome. So that just means when you get your vaccine, it might not work so well if you're not healthy, which, you know, I, I would take that seriously. People, I'm going to eat Pringles on my, on my couch and wait for a vaccine. Scientists, obesity is correlated with a poor vaccine-induced immune response. Here's a study. I'm not making it up. It's real. Uh, you know, you got to take that seriously. You can't just wait around. So the other thing that really diet-related but kind of is because you can get Vitamin D from your diet, it's not impossible. It's uh, hard to get adequate vitamin D from your diet, but it has to be mentioned, especially if you look what David Sinclair has to say here, who's a really big deal. One of the doctors in anti-aging in the world, perhaps, and he has to say low vitamin D occurs in 90% of the patients with ARDS. ARDS is a big deal right now. That's basically what's killing people with COVID. So 90%, I mean, that's a pretty startling number, 90%. But just to put that in some kind of reference, somewhere around 70% of Americans are insufficient with their vitamin D. Somewhere around 30% are deficient in vitamin D. The difference between insufficient and deficient are somewhat nominal. Basically, both mean not getting enough. But if 70% are insufficient, that's pretty high. And here it says 90% of the patients with heart. Uh, you can guess what the other percentage of people who aren't in that 70% are doing. They're most likely outside, working outside, or living in climates where they could be outdoors pretty frequently. And just so people are clear, you can get vitamin D even on a cloudy, rainy day. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be wholesome to get vitamin D. 
and common myth in some of Just a quick study just to show you the role of vitamin D, particularly especially in Spain, Italy, and This is the most vulnerable group and includes vitamin D supplementation. Uh, I heard 5,000 I use every day and have suntan pretty regularly. Um, hey, so I'm going to take over. I uh, I think Peter's having a little bit of trouble with his um, connection right now, but the connection between vitamin D is really important with this. Um, but again, a lot of uh, Americans just in general are vitamin D deficient, and vitamin D is another one of those nutrients that unfortunately not everyone metabolizes as well when it's in food. So if you ingest something that says that it has 1000 units of vitamin D, I may process that, that differently from you. You process it differently from the person next to you. That person processes it differently. It's actually a, a really interesting um, conversation and, and kind of one of those reasons why, again, like medicine, and diet can be really personal to yourself. So I'm gonna take us to the next slide. We'll wait for Peter to come on back in. Um, the role of vitamin D in the prevention of coronavirus. Um, again, to kind of piggyback off of it, we're starting to look, I mean, everyone, I get it. I feel the same way. Everybody wants to talk about us having the appropriate, um, the, the right treatment, the right vaccine, the right testing. Hey, Peter, I'm just talking them through some stuff. We'll get you back in in a second. Um, also, make sure that there's no other windows that are open sure. on your router at all, uh, that no one else using the Wi-Fi and that your browser for Chrome has everything else shut down. Um, so it, it's kind of, I think everyone wants to talk about vaccine, appropriate treatment and testing, and those are really important. It's nice so that some people are doing a deep dive into looking at some things that are a little more holistic and just things that maybe are shedding light on whether when we come out of this, ways that we could possibly be preparing better ourselves. So Peter, I'm gonna turn it back to you. I talked them through vitamin D pretty well. I didn't talk about this study in particular. Feel free, take it back. Did you miss a little bit of what I was saying on this? Yeah, towards the end, to be honest with you, I think it was a okay. little choppy. Once you really started to do a deep dive into vitamin D, we already covered right. that absorption can be different in different people. Feel free to take it wherever you like. Yeah, so basically, again, just to cover over, this study just shows specifically about how COVID has affected uh, people living, especially elderly population in Spain, Italy, and Switzerland who are particularly uh, insufficient in vitamin D. Um, and that's all just to show that it's pretty critical um, and it's pretty easily remedied just going outdoors. I know... Not everyone right now can get outside, but it shouldn't be that difficult, especially morning. I mean, I don't know. What's your routine, Steve, getting outside? What does that look like? Uh, every day, man, I have to. Um, it, I take it kind of as my lunch, um, and I just go for maybe like an hour walk, to be honest with you, and then I jog when I feel like it. I work out every morning, so I know that I'm getting the WHO recommended amount of Steve's exercise points every day. 
but you got to get outside. It's that connection with nature. It's just the ability to change your surroundings. So yeah, I'm making sure that I'm hitting all that every day. Good. All right. So anyway, uh, the big takeaway, get outside, exercise, like Steve just said, um, it's going to, if there's like one thing you do other than eating right, I'd say those are the two big heavy hitters. I mean, even, even beyond uh, supplementation, I would say that's, they, they're pretty up there. Um, so just quickly to continue on with exercise for a minute, this is another study that just came out. A new review article suggests that exercise may help prevent and reduce, again, ARDS. So not just sun helps with ARDS and vitamin D, but exercise. So exercise causes muscles to release a powerful antioxidant, extracellular superoxide dismutase, which helps the lungs. So great study that just came out. It went all around the internet. It's pretty important. And, you know, the doctor here says, uh, medical research findings strongly support the possibility of exercise to prevent or reduce arts. Very important. So I just wanted to go over a couple things I've been seeing in the news. Uh, as you can see here, obesity linked to severe coronavirus disease, especially in younger patients. I don't know if young, I would add even just for younger patients, but they do say young adults with obesity are more likely to be hospitalized even if they have no other symptoms, which, you know, that's pretty big detail right there. So they don't even have comorbidities other than just being overweight. That's, that says a lot about what we're about to talk to talk hey, about. Again, hey, yeah, you, go ahead. The, the, I, I feel like this word and we just find it last time, but give me your definition of comorbidities. I know that sounds like a funny thing because we already uh, said that number 10 times. So can you just define that for anyone out there in the audience that hasn't heard that word yeah, before? Yeah, it just means, the, to keep it real simple, just some other health health issues. So, you know, when people are talking about COVID and comorbidities, they're not talking about like knee pain. They're talking about uh, having high blood pressure or some, you know, the type two diabetes, some other relevant issue, cardiovascular, lung issues. Uh, you know, those are the big, big comorbidities we're looking at right now that really matter. But anyway, so again, another article about coronavirus uh, and being overweight and obese. Um, this is another article from a doctor who I like a lot, who's a cardiologist in England. He's a really big deal in England. He's on television a lot. And he says uh, obesity, type two diabetes, and a cluster of risk factors are all linked to a poor diet and is the root behind Increased death rates from coronavirus foods, which may Hey, Peter, a little bit of trouble. Peter, can you repeat? That's pretty loud, and that's England. What's that? Sorry. I think they're still having a little bit of connection problem. Like I know that I actually couldn't hear the last part that you said. Again, make sure everything's off of you. Uh, loading up your Wi-Fi right now, either on your browser or anywhere in your house. But then take us through that slide one more time. Yeah, so just basically this British doctor who's a cardiologist talks about how basically health is to blame for the high amount of uh, 
deaths in England. And he says one in eight adults are metabolically healthy in England uh, or healthy enough to, you know, really be out of uh, having an issue. And one in eight in England sounds better than it is here because I'm sure that the diet is probably better there than the United States. So, you know, I, that's one reason why last time we spoke, I predicted this country would have such a big problem with COVID because not just diet, but all the other comorbidities that go with diet. So moving on, uh, you know, this is Donald Trump's uh, answer to things. Uh, he's bailing out is part of his recovery plan, a uh, fast food industry rather than the smaller and potentially healthier uh, restaurants that are struggling right now. And that's a problem. And you're seeing that there's a lot of evidence to this. So we're gonna see a lot of the healthier, smaller restaurants close that are gonna have more farm to table kind of, uh, you know, lifestyle and the, the more fast, fast food type restaurants maybe stick around. So we're not exactly putting our priorities in order, uh, at least financially and psychologically. Um, this is a quote from Paul Saldino, uh, a very interesting guy. Uh, I think he really hits the nail on the head here. I'm hearing a lot more talk about the preparedness for the future of our pandemics, virtually none of which include any meaningful consideration of the metabolic and nutritional health of our population and the massive role it's played in our current pandemic. It's time for a paradigm shift. I mean, he said it all right there as far as I'm concerned. You don't see or hear many people talking about how incredibly important this aspect is, but it's kind of the elephant in the room. Like it's literally what is cause, driving the problem but when I turn on the news, I'm not seeing like enough discussion about why that is such a big issue. Why do you have the Latino and black population suffering from this so much more? It's not just that they're poor, it's that they suffer from diabetes and this, this is, you know, the underlying factor that doesn't really get looked at. I don't understand why. It's fine to say black and Latino people are having, getting this virus more, but let's look at why, right? It's not just poor, it's not just that they live on top of each other. Diabetes, health, diet, access to good food. This is, you know, the root cause that we need to be looking at. Does that make sense, Steve? Well, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it's, it, this is gonna shift our country. It's kind of like a, uh, come to Jesus moment. And it, yeah. it'll be interesting to people that'll look at what happened today and say, you know what, I need to be a lot healthier. Or they'll be, able to be like, you know what, we need to come up with a vaccine. Both need to occur, but it's almost like a good Rorschach test of like, how do you view this um, on a micro macro level? Yeah. I mean, this virus really has done an amazing job of spot spotlighting our deficiencies and weaknesses. I mean, the one thing I could praise Donald Trump in is he's really good at really showing and glaring a light on a lot of the issues in our country too, in a lot of weird ways. Uh, and I think this virus has done a great job in it too. Um, anyway, so we'll move on. Uh, 
if you want any more information, like into the details about tailoring a diet for COVID, I like this guy, Jeff Knobs post. You could just Google Jeff Knobs. Um, if you want just a quick summary, these are some of the foods he, he kind of recommends. And he'll, he goes into the, the website a little bit about why he's here. Use the quick, quick and dirty version. But I would suggest if you want to learn a little bit about the more specifics of diet and the COVID-19, yeah, he's one of the few people I've seen put out some good information that really tailors uh, diet to the virus. Um, but now that's the COVID section. Now I want to start talking about just diet. Um, so Steve and I kind of both early on decided that uh, the key and success to the direction we want to take this is not just talking about and telling people what to eat because number one, that's kind of useless sometimes. It doesn't really work and it's very hard to change people's diet. So one way I, I approached it was just starting by looking at people's digestion and kind of letting digestion show you how good your diet is and how you could adjust it. Um, because number one, it gets overlooked. And number two, it doesn't get talked about. Uh, digestion is pretty much uh, not discussed. Like people don't talk about bowel movements or how, how good their digestion is. Doctors will not discuss digestion particularly much. Uh, so it's not just what you eat, but how well you do it. And then we're going to talk about also about when you eat. That's another factor that doesn't get mentioned very much. Uh, so as I said, diet's kind of controversial. Diet's very personal. It's pretty much religious for a lot of people. Uh, the easiest way to get into an argument with my patients is pretty much say anything about diet. It goes bad really quick. Um, but I figured out little techniques how to talk about diet without like getting too upsetting. Uh, so instead of focusing on the controversies about macronutrients, meat, carbs, veg, fat, it's easier to focus on diet, energy, and food quality. Again, something that doesn't gets overlooked, but it also gets people in the right direction. Uh, food quality, uh, rather than going down that meat and veg road, uh, it's easier to focus on what we can agree on. And most people, I think, are willing to at least agree that our, the way we farm in modern industrial farming isn't helping. It's not doing us any favors. And that includes both meat and vegetables. Uh, food quality in this country is pretty poor. And uh, the way it's processed is also a big issue. And the way it affects the environment is a big issue. So I always like to say uh, to some of my patients, and when I go to the supermarket, I look, look at this. I can't help it. But I look at people's baskets, and I see if they're a box person or a whole ingredient person. And you could really see most people really fall pretty hard into one of these categories. They'll have just stacks of boxes, frozen food boxes in their, in their uh, basket, 
or they'll have just like apples and salmon and you know whole ingredients i think it's a really good place to start like where do you fall in that category steve where do you fall in that category yeah so it's it's interesting because i am using this as an opportunity to learn how to cook a little bit better learn how to cook more things um but that being said, because you don't know exactly how much access you're going to have, I've had recently in my cart more boxes than I would have had. It used to be very, very low. Um, but because of what's going on and just kind of wanting to have for that like security blanket, a stocked pantry, I've had more boxes, but also way more produce. We've started uh, for the last two weeks. We went to a CSA and got some really good produce, but then went on top of that. Um, and we're just playing around with a lot of different kind of finding our uh, recipes. So cooking way more, but also stocking the pantry way more. Yeah, I mean, I know a lot of people are stocking away stuff, but it doesn't mean you can't be doing more cooking, especially a lot of people have a little more free time. I mean, I know a lot of people are cooking bread and baking bread and doing a lot of stuff. Um, but it doesn't have to be that intense. It could just be, again, like using whole ingredients. Um, I know it, it has to be said that a lot of people are overeating because they're stressed out right now. And, you know, one way to like adjust that a little bit is by eating whole ingredients. We'll talk a little bit more about how to uh, fix those kind of issues in a little bit. But, you know, I don't know. Have you heard about like COVID-15? You know, have you heard that? No, what is it? I mean, the, the coronavirus that was in 15? Oh, no, that's 15, 15, 15 pounds. pounds. Got it. There we go. 15 pounds that everyone's putting on. Oh, no, uh, I'm like leaner than I've ever been. I actually yeah, like I mean, I think you're going you're to definitely see people fall pretty hard one way or the other when this is over. Oh, I yeah. mean, I think for sure, people are coming out of this with longer hair. <laughs> and... And, you know, uh, a belly or super, super lean. I'm free. Yeah. Right, exactly. Anyway, so I should learn to cook. One study, like you just said, one study showed that people who cook up to five times a week were 47% more likely to still be alive in 10 years. Learn to cook, use whole ingredients can be the easiest thing you could do for your health. If we don't even touch anything about your diet and just learn to cook and use whole ingredients, you're probably getting in the right direction. And that includes aesthetics, that includes health, that includes all the different aspects. It's not just like longevity or whatever. Like it's gonna help on all, all factors. So this, uh, you know, probably the biggest downfall in American diet uh, the sad standard American diet uh, is processed foods. It's the thing that gets kind of pointed at as being the biggest issue. Um, so a recent NIH study showed that people on an ultra-processed diet ate more calories and gained more weight than from less processed food. That should be pretty obvious. Other research showed that a connection between packaged foods and increased cancer and early deaths. Go ahead, did you have something? No, that was just like, duh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, right. Uh, and then sometimes called hyperpalatable foods. I don't know if everyone out there has heard the term hyperpalatable foods, but they 
are basically a big part of how processed foods are manufactured and how, how and why they're manufactured that way is to manipulate the way we eat, eat food, the way we consume, and the way we overconsume. And it's messing with key hormones that we're going to talk about a little bit. Uh, so I want to just first give a, like, a light definition of what processed foods are because it doesn't really mean anything unless you know what I'm talking about. Um, first, just like a study, I'm not making hyperpalatable foods up. There are plenty of studies that talk about how food addiction is a neurobiological and behavioral thing and how food is really messing with not just our hormones but our, just our neurons, our brain. Uh, it's a real thing. Um, there's tons of good information. There's a great book by Rob Wolf called Wired to Eat. It talks a lot about this. I think he's one of the first person people that I've heard use the term hyperpalatability. And since he's written that book, Wired to Eat, you've heard it a lot more and more if you're in that space. So anyway, it's a thing. Uh, food processing, you don't need to look at the whole list here. But just quickly, you want to stick with this unprocessed food group, plants, fruits, seeds, nuts, roots, meats, uh, fresh, fermented. Um, processed food's not as big an issue. They're just like things that have like a couple ingredients when you buy them, salt, uh, fat, sugar, you know, they're, they don't have a complicated list of ingredients. It's the ultra processed foods that have the longer list of things. And then also have like a lot of vegetable oil. Uh, and those ultra processed foods are really the ones that are the most damaging. Um, so as you just said, Steve, you get the good stuff by going to a CSA. Uh, I belong to CSAs in the past. That's community supported agriculture. I'd say pretty much no matter where you live, you could find a CSA not too far from you. There are maps all over the place that you could Google and find one near you. Uh, there are pickup sites at churches, schools. They're really easy. Sometimes the prices are pretty phenomenal too. I don't know, what have you found? Price-wise? Yeah, uh, hit or miss, you know, because sometimes I think yeah. you pay what you get for um, or you get what you pay for, um, meaning it is higher quality food, so it's a little bit more expensive. It's kind of like the difference between getting coffee at Dunkin' Donuts and getting it at your local coffee shop. Like it might be a little more expensive, but it's probably higher quality. So it's a balance. It's, it depends on the CSA. I know the one I belong to, it was really reasonable. And I got a ton of food. Like when they were growing a lot, the farmer, because it's a direct connection. There's no middleman. It's a direct connection between you and the farmer. And when my farmer was growing a lot, I was just, crazy stock. My refrigerator was totally yeah. full of vegetables. I could barely finish them. Uh, so it really does depend on which CSA. You could check into it. Anyway, then there's Misfits Market. I'm sure, Steve, you heard of that one. Yeah, we uh, have a promo code for them up on our website that we don't have anymore. But yeah, I uh, mean, yeah, the Misfits. Uh, so to tell everybody about Misfits Market, yeah. it's the like ugly produce, meaning the things that they don't feel... Um, totally at food that's totally edible but something that they believe because of a visual augmentation wouldn't sell if they put it out into the produce section and i i was baffled every time i got it because they look fine like i can't find raw with this food that it just it's so much cheaper too it's only 20 bucks yeah. 
you get a ton right. of food and you're helping out the environment. Do it. Yeah, it's pretty great. And, and again, like right now with like delivery food, as far as I know, they're still delivering right now, I think. Do you know? Not sure, to be honest with you. Okay. I think I see people in my building getting them. So I think they are doing delivery. I know there are still a lot of food delivery services still going. And then, of course, farmer's market. Of course, right now, we're not going to, we're not all going to farmer's markets. And anyway, a lot of food is not available at farmer's markets yet. But soon enough, things will be available, and hopefully we can go. Uh, those are my top choices at the moment. Uh, so there's this thing called the real food movement. I don't know, Steve, have you heard of the real food movement? No, I haven't. I'm excited. I saw this slide I was seeing that I was like, I'm going to learn yeah. something today. Yeah, so I mean, the real food movement kind of grew out of probably the slow food movement. I don't know. Have you heard of that one? Slow no. food? Great. All right. Slow food. Slow food kind of came out of, I believe, in Italy, uh, which is just this concept uh, of just cooking things slowly, taking the time, using good local in ingredients for cooking good quality stuff. Because in Europe, there's a tradition of taking your time to sit down and eat and also preparing food that way. Obviously, in America, we don't have that. So it became a bigger kind of movement about 10 years ago in the U.S., where restaurants, where people would kind of embrace that idea of going slow and breaking things down to the more simple idea of cooking. And so the real movement really did come, real food movement really came out of that. And probably, I don't know if he's personally responsible, but I know Michael Pollan is a, you know, a big proponent of the real food movement. And what I like about it is the simplicity. It's not a diet. But again, I'm not here to tell everyone what to eat. And telling each person what to eat would be a tall tale. It'd be a very big ask. But what, what we can do very quickly when we get people just eating real food, we can get them in the right direction. And when you eat real food, you, you do have real digestion too. It's, you know, and you really do start understanding the effects of eating good food and how it affects your health. It's like the simplest, easiest way to just start out with a, a diet without it being really a diet. Um, so anyway, you can see here on the list, I mean, feel free to look at the list here. There's a lot of information online about the real food movement, but essentially, as you can see, it's using real basic old school ingredients uh, as Michael Pollan said, don't eat anything your grand great-grandmother wouldn't recognize. Avoid food products that contain ingredients that a third grader can't pronounce. Shop <laughs> the peripheries of the supermarket, I guess because you have fruit and like meat on the periphery, right? Uh, all the box stuff is more in the middle of the supermarket. Eat only the foods that will eventually rot. Uh, eat more like the French, Japanese, Italians, or Greeks. Sounds good. I mean, not only, you know, is it healthy? It's good. Tastes good. Um, I'm all for that. So, again, just I know it's kind of basic information here. We're going to get more complicated in a minute. But I wanted to start out with the basics. Um, so just real quick, from a Chinese medicine perspective, how does Chinese medicine look at diet and digestion? Uh, 
we focus a lot of, on on elimination. If you go to a Chinese medicine doctor, they'll often ask you a lot of questions about bowel movements and stuff. Like they take it pretty serious, uh, or we we take it very serious. If you only focus on diet and not elimination, you're really missing half the picture. It's huge part of our health, and importantly, it's much easier to remedy than people think. So we're going to talk today about ways of remedying digestive issues. Uh, we're going to talk about types of diets that aren't exactly diets, but uh, techniques to get you. We're going to give everybody today easy techniques, very actionable, real world things that you can do to try to get your diet to where it probably is more ideal for you on an individual level. Because that's what it I mean, if we just say this is the diet to have, it's a little crazy because we have to figure out what's for you, the individual, what works. And the only way to do that is to try to test and see for yourself what's working, what's not working. And like I said, digestion is going to be the big clue, but also how you feel, how your energy is also going to be a big clue. So bloating, constipation, IBS are super common. The amount of people who came in to see me who said, when I do ask about elimination, the amount of people who said they have IBS or constipation, it's crazy. I have seemingly healthy patients who have bowel movements once a week, who are young, healthy, fit, uh, you know, shocking, and they think that's normal. It's, that's not normal. Uh, a large percentage of my patients have elimination issues, and that's going to lead to other problems later on. I mean, if you just are eliminating once a week, that's going to that's going to be a problem later on, including a lot of inflammation. Uh, so, briefly, ch Chinese medicine sees digestion uh, through energy and basically energy. Uh, it's highly related to energy. Bad digestion equals low energy due to the amount of energy that's necessary to break down food in the gut. So we see breaking food down as a mechanical process that requires a lot of your energy. Um, so if you're feeling slow, sluggish, fatigued, part of it may be because all the energy your body's required to use to break food down. Um, just as a quick example, they use a lot in Chinese medicine, cows have four stomachs and they have to break down cellulose because they're eating all that grass, raw grass. And it, the food, the grass travels from one chamber to the next to break it down. It, they have four ch chambers of their stomachs because it takes so much time and energy to break it down. We just have one long digestive system and it requires a lot of energy. So raw food has perhaps more nutrients but often it's unavailable. So cooking and fermenting are really helpful ways. And especially if you have digestive issues, the more cooking you do often of vegetables particularly really helps to digest them. So some people, if you're just simply not digesting while we're feeling heavy after you eat salads or, or cook vegetables, maybe cook them a little longer or add some other spices like ginger, cinnamon, whatever, some warming spices, it may really help. Uh, also, Chinese medicine digestion relates to muscle strength, 
so when we look at herbs like ginseng, which is like really traditional thing that we think about as being like a super energetic, it works because in Chinese medicine, we see ginseng working as helping your digestion, which helps give you more energy. Anyway, so uh, when I ask my patients about diet, I always get the same answer. I eat good, lean, clean diet. It's pretty much the standard response. No matter what their diet is, everyone's got a good, clean diet. Or now a lot of people maybe say plant-based, which, you know, I'm not sure exactly what that means. That's a nice, nice word, but unless we start defining it, I don't know what that means exactly. Uh, so I usually follow up after saying how, you know, about their diet is how's your digestion. Uh, so a lot of people with clean diets, it turns out, have really bad digestion. So quick little study, case study that happened not too long ago. A patient came in with really severe constipation, stomach issues. It was really quite severe. And he said he was eating a really clean diet. And he told me what he was eating. It was really clean. Uh, but it was super high in fiber and mostly raw vegetables and a little meat. So that sounds to a lot of people like, oh, he's, he's doing great, right? High fiber, a lot of raw, raw salads, little meat, not too much. So I suggested, look, just try to eat less fiber and try to stop eating so much fiber and eat, eating so many raw vegetables, start cooking them. And pretty shortly after speaking, he went to the hospital and he was told by the doctor, which I was happy to hear that the doctor was on the same page, to do the exact same thing that I suggest. And he was really shocked that both of us said the same thing. But it turns out after he tried it, problem solved. He was like literally considering surgery prior to this. Uh, you know, we're gonna talk a little bit now about how cooking and fiber and food uh, really affects our digestive system. So of course everyone thinks that fiber is good. Yes, many people, if you're very healthy, fiber is great. So if you're in a great shape, you're, you're healthy, you have a good microbiome, you have a good gut, good eliminations, fiber may not be a problem. Yeah, go ahead. Would you mind just defining those terms for as far as um, like the way that I would talk about it as far as like your gut is anything from your mouth to your butthole, your whole digestive tract. Yeah, yeah, that is your GI. Um, your microbiome yeah. is the, is, and when we just say microbiome, you're actually talking about the whole body. But when we're talking in this and we're talking about the microbiome, we're talking about the individual small organisms that live inside of your body. So the bacteria, the fungus, the parasites, even the viruses, protozoas, like anything sure. that's not you that's living inside of your body is your microbiome or your microbiota. Would, would you, are those the definitions that you're using? You got it. You Great. Got it. Just making sure everyone's on the same page with that. Yeah, I mean, you have particular uh, bacteria that live just in your mouth. You mm -hmm. have particular bacteria that live throughout the whole GI tract. And some have very specific jobs to be in very specific places. Just like on your skin, there are certain bacteria that live in your hair. There are certain bacteria that live under your arms, 
that only colonize those areas. So, you know, we have bacteria is very specific to different parts and have different functions. Um, so, one important uh, term that I'm using right now is dysbiosis. And as, as you see here, I say gut bacterial imbalances. So, eating fiber for somebody who has a good, healthy digestive system and their bacteria are nice and balanced. The way we know that someone has a good balanced, imbalanced microbiome is not necessarily through testing. It's just by looking at how they digest. So again, dysbiosis is a kind of dysfunction of the bacteria that you have. You have either too many of one thing, too little of another, uh, too many parasites, like you just said, have viruses, uh, perhaps leaky gut issues, which I'm not going to get into too much. But anyway, so what causes causes these imbalances is dysbiosis. So these are just the basics, stress, alcohol, medication, antibiotics, poor diet, and something called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is just an overgrowth of bacteria, but the bad ones, not the good ones. So you have, and that's one reason why fiber is so bad, because potentially so bad, I should say, is because you're feeding the bad bacteria that you have and you don't have enough of the good ones. So you just imagine you're feeding the bad guys. So if you have a good healthy gut to start with and you're feeding it with fiber, you're good because you're feeding the good ones, right? But if they're not even there, what's the, what's the sense of feeding? And you know, it's putting fuel to the fire for a lot of people. And that's where you see people start getting a lot of constipation, a lot of bloating. Uh, you could have also diarrhea or back and forth constipation, diarrhea. So those are uh, big things to look at. So IBS type symptoms, bloating are big ones when you when we're talking about too much fiber. Uh, so it can be remedied and the easiest elimination type diet, which isn't really a diet as much as an experiment that you can do for say a few weeks or a month. Uh, this isn't necessarily in my opinion, something to be doing long-term because it's really just to eliminate things and see how your gut responds. It's a test. It's an easy test to do because it only takes a month uh, or a couple weeks. And this is a really well-researched diet in eliminating bloating uh, and digestive complaints. It's probably one of the most well-researched it comes out of this uh, university in Australia, which, by the way, if you want to look up their app, uh, they have a great app that talks a lot about which foods uh, are appropriate on this diet. So it's called a FODMAP diet. There's a ton of information on it. It's an elimination diet uh, that eliminates particular plants and fruit fibers that cause excessive fermentation in the gut. Some plants and fruits have a real high amount of fermentability, such as garlic, onions, and beans. We all know those are kind of foods that make people gassy, but why? Because some people have that imbalance of bacteria. So when you eat garlic, you might be really feeding the problem, right? You're feeding the, the bad bacteria. So that's a, a really good place to start, and it only takes a couple weeks it gets a little 
challenging this diet because it's non-intuitive. It, when I say it's non-intuitive, I mean you can't just mentally figure out which plants and fruits and everything are going to be fermentable and not fermentable. But once you do it for a little bit, you'll start understanding the direction. And it's a spectrum. It's not just like, you know, every food matters. Some foods are far worse. Some foods are far better. And you, you, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Did you want to say anything about FODMAP, Steve? No, but I think that it's important. I, I think you hit the nail on the head when you say, like, sometimes when people feel like they have this odd smattering of foods that seem to upset them, sometimes a common denominator is the fermentability of those foods. And if you weren't aware that this might perhaps be part of the problem and therefore elimination might be part of the equation, to get you back to where you want to be, you can feel kind of lost. So yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It's also worth noting, as you said, the way that foods are prepared or the state that they are in can affect their fermentability. Um, soft tofu versus extra firm hard tofu are different. Extra firm hard tofu is less fermentable than that soft tofu. So it's just looking at things through that lens, even just for a moment to do some self-reflection can be a very good idea if you're experiencing any of the things that we've been talking about. Or even if you don't think you are, it's yeah. just worth taking a, putting those glasses on for a second. Yeah, and if you just think about it for a second, what are all the vegetables that we use to ferment normally to make things uh, like cabbage, uh, like sauerkraut, kimchi, uh, we use garlic, onions, cabbage these are you know things that we already know have a high fermentability that's why we use them to, to make ferments uh, it does the same thing in the gut because and that's why we get so much bloating uh, we're not able to break down things properly so if you avoid these things for a little while a couple weeks sometimes what happens is our gut starts going back to normal and you start getting a more proper balance of bacteria and then you can start eating those vegetables again, which is the key to the whole thing. You don't have to do it forever. You do it for a few weeks, which, you know, isn't the hardest thing in the world, especially if you have pretty strong symptoms of IBS or bloating or constipation. Let's say you've had constipation for, like, years. This is an easy thing to try for, for a little bit and try to remedy that. Uh, anyway, and by the way, it's the gold standard Thing that works for IBS. It's the most researched and we know it works. So there's also that. It's scientifically proven to work. So as I said, gold standard for checking for food in, intolerances, insensitivities, allergies is not about blood work or taking fancy tests. That's how I'm able to do it with my patients. I don't prescribe uh, fancy blood work. I just have patients do elimination type diets like this. So a simple elimination diet does just that. It removes food for a couple weeks, usually around three to four weeks. So for example, nuts, wheat, corn, soy, beans, dairy, citrus, nightshades, etc. And then after the three, four weeks, we slowly introduce them back into the diet at three day increments. So let's say we just wanna do nuts and wheat because we think those might be bothering or dairy and, and beans. We'll just stop those for about three, four weeks. 
and then slowly introduce them back one at a time with increments of three days. Uh, if you wipe this whole thing clean for a couple weeks and then start reintroducing, you'll get a very clear picture when you do reintroduce them if you get those symptoms within 24 hours of bloating, gas, indigestion, fatigue, any bowel issues, you're going to see those right away if you haven't had them for a month. If the problem is, if we're having them all the time, we're not going to get that nice, clear signal. Does that make sense? I think that makes perfect sense. And it, it is nice to hear if, if you are entertaining doing these elimination diets. Again, it is not forever. And then the other part is, kind of like picking and choosing the things like, oh, you know what? I didn't really miss X, Y, Z, but I did miss this. Let me do a three-day window and then you have your answer. And then even if it doesn't work out, there's other things that you can do and go back. And that'll probably be a time for another lecture with you and I, but it's worth, it's a great place to start. Yeah. And one way they, they some people describe it is like having a dirty windshield. When the, your windshield is all dirty, you can't see what's going on. When you just do a 30-day elimination of certain foods that you think might be bothering you, the list that I give here is a good bunch that I frequently use. It's just like cleaning the windshield, and then you see what sticks once you start eating them in three-day increments. And you'll see very clearly, oh, all right, dairy's not bothering, but, but wheat is. It gives you a very clear picture. And then you just have to eliminate one thing. You don't have to eliminate all foods. A lot of people go the other route where they eliminate too much. And that's not good either. You could eat whatever, citrus, go for it. You know, I don't want anyone eliminating foods if they can eat it. I mean, why? I mean, I have tons of patients who have like erroneously eliminated foods for no reason. Um, anyway, some books that I like a lot, I suggest all the time. I know Steve, you got into Dr. Ruscio too now, uh, Healthy Gut, Healthy You. There it is. It's an inexpensive book. I have patients get it uh, as an ebook. It's inexpensive. I think it's like nine bucks. It's like a real great step-by-step -step guide how to do a lot of the things we're talking about. This webinar will do a great job kind of defining a lot of the things he talks about in the book. But if you want to go the extra step, that book is a good, good place. And, and then for patients, with uh, diet issues or weight issues, The Obesity Code by Jason Fung, one of my favorite books. Um, he's a brilliant doctor. Do you have any uh, anything to add on to that one? Just if you want, these are all on our website. Uh, there's a really good podcast by Jason Fung where he takes about two hours mm -hmm. and sums up a lot of his work. Um, we have a, pod, a short podcast, a long video or vice versa with Dr. Ruscio, and we'll get into it later, but I've taken some of his materials and put them on our website to lay out a plan for you if you're looking to start to look into your digestion. Yeah, so this, these are my favorites, but there's plenty more, obviously. Um, so when it comes to inflammation and diet, the one that I use probably more than any other diet with my patients is the Whole30 diet. It's, there's tons of resources online about it. You can find tons of information. There's a, uh, plenty of websites, no problem finding it. So it's only 30 days. That's another reason why I like it. Designed to eliminate foods that frequently cause weight gain. All that puffiness we were talking about before. A lot of my patients come back and maybe didn't lose a lot of weight, but they're like, I look better, I le I'm less puffy. Um, it's a great, people, a great choice for people who have autoimmune issues. 
And so it just basically eliminates dairy, sugar, grains, beans, and alcohol. I know for some people that sounds like a lot. For me, that's easy, but everyone's different. I don't know. Uh, it sometimes is combined with a low FODMAP diet if you want to get a little tricky. But even on its own, just doing the Whole30 diet, it's great. I had a patient recently learn who's already fairly good shape, lost eight pounds in, in a month doing it. Uh, and she was already in good shape, lean. She, she discovered it was dairy for her, right? And that dairy, which she was eating a lot, was putting a lot of weight on her. Uh, you know, she felt a lot better. So we're going to talk a little bit about uh, hormones and the big role they play in our diet. Uh, it seems somewhere around the 80s that uh, a lot of information and diets started coming out that weren't just focused only on calories. So, you know, the law of thermodynamics, calories in, calories out. That was pretty much the whole focus of diets up until, I believe, the first diet was called the zone diet. This guy, Barry Sears, came out with this diet that started saying, hey, why don't we look at the whole body and look at hormones, not just calories, because, you know, we could have a snicker bar amount of calories versus broccoli amount of calories, and they could be roughly the same amount of calories, but clearly they don't mean the same thing, right? Uh, it's not just calories in, calories out, but calories do matter. It's not like we could escape the law of thermodynamics. It's not like calories are just meaningless. It's just we have to put them in context with hormones. So yeah, it kind of matters. Uh, hormones are a key player in weight and have oddly been overlooked in the equation. But now finally people are starting to look. We're going to talk a little bit about some hormones that you might not have thought of or might not have learned about. So which ones? We have insulin. Insulin's a big driver of uh, weight. I know my father used to take insulin and it really regulated his weight when he started going up and down in insulin, you could see his weight fluctuate. It's a huge one. Uh, cortisol, which everyone's heard of as the stress hormone, leptin, ghrelin, hormones most people haven't exactly heard of, but we're gonna get you to hear about them today. Um, I don't know, Steve, in the past, I don't know, have you heard of leptin, ghrelin? Yeah, sure, um, but probably only because of the million podcasts that you send my way I'm, that I listen to. Like, did I encounter leptin on my own? Yes. Did I encounter ghrelin on my own? No. And yeah. do I understand leptin significantly more? Yeah. yeah. Now, 100%. Yeah. So the only other hormone I'd mention is thyroid hormones. Those sometimes do get overlooked when people are doing everything right, even eating right. You have to have your thyroid checked out. Uh, and there's so many issues with thyroid issues going on right now, especially in women. There's there's a lot of autoimmune issues. Uh, and that could go far beyond diet into stress, general health. It's a harder one to track. But insulin, cortisol, leptin, ghrelin, very much within our reach of, of manipulating. So first, leptin decreases hunger, ghrelin increases hunger. That's, that's their roles. Uh, they work with the brain to really decrease hunger and increase hunger. I'm going to keep a lot of this stuff as simple as I can, so it's very manageable and understandable. So hyperpalatable foods that we were talking about earlier, 
really manipulate this leptin and ghrelin situation. So McDonald's knows a lot about these hormones. They know how to, to mix sugar, fat, salt in just the right way to make you to keep consuming, over-consuming, and messing with these hormones in your brain. So all these hormones really are messed with, especially with people who are obese, who have stress, who don't exercise and have poor sleep. That's when you really see leptin and ghrelin get all over the map. Um, so quick story, I, I did mention this last time, but I wanna mention it again, just to show how hormones play such a big role in our lives. Uh, a normal healthy fasting glucose number is shown here by my friend Mike. Uh, uh, when he had a very stressful day going to the airport, even after a 13-hour fast, a low-carb eating weekend, a stressful travel spiked his blood sugar to 161. And if you know anything about blood glucose, that's crazy high. It shows you how can cortisol, and cortisol and insulin are super affected by stress. So it's not just what you eat. I mean, it matters, but, you know, stress plays a major role. Yeah. Now that makes perfect sense though, right? Meaning if you were truly in an environment where you needed to perform, meaning like, let's say your sympathetic nervous system is getting upregulated, an animal gets dropped, a tiger gets dropped in the room that you're sitting in, you would want that blood glucose level to go sky high because you need it at that moment. Like just to kind of connect the dots, like that yeah. makes perfect sense though. It may seem a little bit odd because we don't always think of ourselves as animals, but if we do, and we look at ourselves through the lens of we are animals, nothing makes more sense in that picture, correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So your liver dumps glucose into the bloodstream so your muscles can utilize it through glycogen, and that's fuel for your muscles. Uh, when you take people's blood work after they've exercised, you see very high spikes. That's normal. When you see people under stress, you see those very high spikes. But then when you see people who have done, done meditation or relax, you see it, do, it does come down. Also, interestingly, uh, when you do like cold therapy, you really see people's uh, blood sugar really drop significantly. It's a pretty interesting uh, experiment you can try. But anyway, that's not for today. Uh, so everyone's heard of insulin resistance, but leptin resi resistance is a real thing too. It's very similar, almost identical. It's a dysfunction of when your brain stops hearing the leptin signal, just like it stops hearing the insulin signal. So it thinks you're starving, but you're not, and you continue to eat. So your brain becomes resistant to the signal, keeps pr pumping out this signal, and it's it's not listening to it. You just keep going because you don't know that you're full. You know, it's essentially the that barometer, that governor is off. You just keep going. And that is like I was saying before, what McDonald's and a lot of fast food companies really manipulate because they know how to play with this leptin and find, you always have this extra room for a piece of cake at the end of the meal. Uh, so eating less and exercising more becomes a bigger hormonal, hormonal challenge 
is why many people struggle with weight loss because it's a hormonal neurological issue. It's not just that they're lazy or have no willpower. They've been manipulated, unfortunately, through years of either stress, poor diet, uh, low exercise, low, poor sleep. Anyway, so it's a real thing. It's just like insulin resistance. Uh, interestingly, leptins also play a role in your immune system. They're cytokines. They're part of your immune system signaling. Obesity and leptins produce produced in, in the fat tissue exacerbate the cytokine reactions that we're having right now. So just to put it together, they don't just matter in general, but these cytokine storms that you're seeing uh, in extreme cases when people are having the ARDS, the uh, respiratory issues, they are partially respons responsible because of these, these leptins. And one interesting fact is that by just changing your diet today, right now, just like you can have an instant response on your insulin, you can have an ins instant response on your leptins by just eating properly, eating good, a good diet. You're going to see quick changes. Hormones can be very fast. Uh, so you're, if you start having a good diet, your insulin notices. If you have a good diet, your leptins notice too. So by not sitting at home right now and binge eating and stress eating, you can make a really big difference in how your body responds to potentially getting sick. So this is more critical time to be eating well, not the time to be lay, laying around and just stress eating. It's more important now than ever. And you can make quick changes. It's not like it's gonna take a while. Maybe your body's not gonna look different, but it's gonna feel different. So, Going back to the whole leptin resistance, like crazy train that a lot of people find themselves on where they're dieting, it's not working, they're leptin resistant, they're, it's a bit of a mess. How do they fix it? So these are just some basic techniques. Like we talked about before, avoiding processed food, huge sugar and inflammation, hyperpalatability like we talked about earlier, eating good fiber if you can handle it. That helps with leptin resistance. Exercise, I mean, I'm not gonna go off into exercise too much, but lifting weights, in my opinion, is one of the starting points or just resistance training in general. I see with my patients, Steve, you could talk about this, but I see my patients over-exercising with uh, cardio and not really working on muscle strength and resistance, and they're really not doing themselves a favor when it talks when we're talking about weight loss, because cardio, which can be fine uh, and it has its place, when you have a lot of muscle mass, and it doesn't have to be a lot, just having muscle mass, you have muscles which are efficiency machines. Muscles, like I said earlier, eat sugar; they're glycogen machines. So when you eat food that has sugar, has carbohydrates, they're gonna be digested into your muscle and they have a place to go. It's like a sink. It, you have space for them to where they can go. If there's no sink and you're, you're just eating carbs and you're not utilizing them with muscle, where do they go? They become storage, right? We don't wanna store fat, we wanna utilize it. And muscles are like the pinnacle of great things to have
to blow through your your glycogen and, and sugar. Does that make sense? You could, if you want to say something on that, go ahead. No, I think I think that's great, and I just think that having doing strength training and having your muscles be accustomed with building and dumping and building and dumping again that those glycogen sores. So again, that's your it's everyone has the ability to store glucose in different places. You can store it in the liver, you can store it in the muscle and having that muscle through appropriate resistance exercises, build up those stores, dump those stores, build up those stores, dump those stores is a really good thing to keep your body in homeostasis or to keep all of your systems working well together. Yeah. And you know, cardio doesn't necessarily get that uh, same benefit. Not to mention, cardio doesn't have a lot of the same hormonal benefits as well. There's a lot of interesting hormonal cascades that happen when you gain muscle that you're not going to get when you're necessarily just doing cardio all the time. But I'm not knocking cardio. There's plenty of benefits there, too. I'm just saying it's overlooked frequently when it comes to weight loss for a lot of people, especially women. Uh, but, you know, ideally you're doing both. Uh, anyway. So sleep, sleep couldn't be more important for metabolic efficiency. We don't need to talk about it, but it helps with leptin resistance as we were talking about before. Lowering triglycerides. Triglycerides are on all your blood tests. If you wanna go back and look at one of your past blood tests, you can see in the section that has uh, the markers for cholesterol. So, you know, HDL, LDL, triglycerides, they're all going to be under your cholesterol numbers. I love to look at patients' uh, triglycerides because I could really get a sneaky view into understanding their diet really quick. Um, it's like a great reflection of what's going on in their diet because it does show a lot about how much carbs, sugar, and alcohol they're eating. Uh, it's a great number to look at. And again, when you lower your triglycerides, you really do help with your leptin and ghrelin and all the hormones we were talking about before. Uh, eating enough protein, I'm a fan of eating enough protein, especially as you get older. Uh, older patients need to be eating higher protein diets, in my opinion. Uh, younger folks, it's debatable. Uh, I would say what feels appropriate. Uh, eating enough fat, I'm a big fan of good fat when I say fat. I'm not talking about McDonald's. I, I mean uh, olive oil, uh, fish, uh, avocados. For me, one of the easiest ways to uh, supplement a meal is just simply throwing an avocado into the meal because it's highly satiating. If you feel like you haven't eaten enough and you just throw an avocado on top of your meal, you'll be surprised because Essentially, one, one thing I should talk about a little bit is basically this basic idea about fats and carbs and the different types of diets that we hear a lot about. So we have low-carb diets, right? Low-carb, high-fat, right? Then we have medium-carb, medium-fat, right? That's the kind of Mediterranean diet, the one that people have been told to eat a lot. Then we have high-carb low fat, which is more like uh, the diets of the 80s, which were like maybe uh, 
low fat everything, right? They're very popular, like low fat yogurt, but then also like more healthy diets like vegetarian or vegan diets can go that way too. So you have low carb, high fat, which is maybe more uh, paleo diets or ketogenic diets. So those are the three that we look at, right? The last, if we throw one fourth one, is gonna be high fat, high carbs. And that's the standard American diet, essentially. And that's the one where we're guaranteed to gain weight. Uh, when you have high carbs and high fat, it's not easy to lose weight on that diet. It's a pretty much guaranteed success, uh, you know, good way to gain weight if you want to. But what I want my patients to do and everyone listening is to figure out which one of those mechanisms work best. The one that's been studied the most is moderate carbs, moderate fat. That's the Mediterranean diet. That's the one that's been talked about the most and studied the most. And we know that works. But does that work for you? Do we know what moderate even means? And that's the problem when we talk about that moderate Mediterranean diet. What's moderate for some people could be over here and what's moderate can be over here for another person. And that's why I like to experiment and have some people do high carb, low fat or low fat, high carb and experiment for a couple weeks and see what works. What works for me personally is having a high fat, low carb diet. What I've noticed is when I have higher fats, I feel satiated for a long period of time and I don't have to eat as frequently. Not that eating is a problem, but I go long periods without feeling hungry. And one simple, easy test that everyone can take away from this whole lecture is how do you feel after you eat? So we're not just talking about feeling heavy, but also like fatigue, how much energy do you have? And very importantly, how hungry are, are, are you and how soon did it happen after you last ate? If you ate a meal and you're hungry right after, something hormonally is not working and you probably ate something that wasn't great prior. If that meal carries you for a sufficient amount of time, there's a good sign that hormonally something's working. It's a good way to kind of test uh, both the quality, the nutrition, you know, if it's right for you, is your hunger level. Satiation is a really great tell that people kind of ignore. Uh, if you're not hungry, don't eat. <laughs> It's a simple rule that I like to follow, but your body is telling you something very clearly when you feel hungry. And you want to add anything on that, Steve? Yeah, I think I think that that's great. I think it's the if if you eat and then you're hungry two hours later, for hmm. so one hour later, yeah, sure. One hour later, there's your body's telling you that 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 perhaps there was something that was missing in that, that it didn't feel nutriently micro or macro, that it received what it needed. And then to keep on chasing after that can be more problematic than sitting back and doing some experimentation and finding what gets you to that three to four hour window. Yeah, yeah, this is where like insulin really plays a big role too. Like, you know, that's, that's a big driver for that hunger thing that messes up a lot of people. And you know, it's a big mess for most Americans. But anyway, so 
it's not just what you eat, but it's also when. And it's overlooked again. And it's a very simple thing to mess with. Again, if you want to just try one thing, if let's say you don't want to do elimination diet, let's say you don't even want to do the real food thing that we were talking about, maybe just play with when you eat. Let's just start there. I know I get huge results when I start messing with when I eat. Uh, I know, Steve, you, you have too. Uh, so there's something called the eating window. And the eating window is the time of day spent eating. So, you know, you wake up in the morning. We clock in once we start eating. We clock out after your last meal at the day. That's your eating window, right? So some people have looked at intermittent fasting. Uh, it's, it has many uh, potential eating windows. The one that we see probably most frequently uh, is the 168 uh, window, which just means you eat during eight hours, which isn't crazy, and you fast for 16 hours. You give your body a little break from eating. You don't have to do this all the time necessarily. You can do it a few days. There are lots of different ways to mess around with this. Um, if you want to try five days a week or something like that, um, there's lots of benefits to be gained. And it's pretty shocking how differently you digest and feel uh, and also how much inflammation you may conjure up uh, when you uh, avoid uh, having a, a healthy eating window. Um, 16-8 is a great one. So that 16-8 would just be, you know, 10 o'clock breakfast, which may be late for some people, and, you know, 6 o'clock uh, dinner. Not so crazy, right? Yeah, go ahead. If someone feels intimidated by that, though, a 12 and 12 is a very reasonable place to start, especially sure. when you're out of those bounds. Um, and it is worth mentioning that there is some research that gallstones can be um, associated with larger windows consistently. I just think it's responsible for us to mention that. That being said, we're not, I don't think either of us said do this all the time, every single day, but playing around with those windows is something that's, that can be a benefit for sure. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, if we look here, here are some of those benefits. Whoa. Help with weight loss, boost metabolism and hormonal effect. That's, the, the you know, what's going on when you intermittent fast. You, and these are, these are all studies. I have studies for each of the things I'm about to say. You can reduce insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes. You can reduce inflammation and oxidative stress. Heart disease, risk factors like blood pressure and cholesterol. Uh, autophagy, which we talked about last week, which is just the healthy removal of bad old cells, cleaning out the body of dead old cells. Uh, it may help with brain health, uh, help you just simply live longer. In my studies, it's famous intermittent fasting is well known to make mice live a lot longer, and it probably carries over into human beings from what we see. Uh, so. Definitely something worth giving a try. Did you want to say anything on that at all? or No, that, it's just that mice research isn't new. I remember learning about it when I was in college about 15 years ago and thinking that it was bananas, calorie, more calorie restriction, but along the same lines. Yeah. And right. like, no way I could ever possibly do that, but you can do it. It's just you crave what you consume. If you can just break up your, in about two or three weeks, just break a cycle, everything changes. Yeah, and like I said, just try it for a week, 
I would try going the 16-8 at least for the, for a week and just try it out or even half a week. Just try it for a few days, see what how you feel, see if you sleep better, see if you have a little less achiness, uh, see what happens. It's not that hard to give it a try for a little bit. So I want to talk a little bit also about supplements I use in my practice all the time, uh, pretty regularly. Uh, so when we have we have thorns uh, biogest i use this supplement a lot with patients who have gerd gerd is just gastro reflux reflux disease any kind of reflux issue right or low stomach acid so a lot of people who come in who say they have too much stomach acid or reflux it turns out from a lot of newer research that it actually is low stomach acid. This, the symptoms of low stomach acid and high stomach acid, unfortunately, look almost identical. So you're probably more likely to be on the low stomach acid end of things, especially if you're not a young person. As you get older, you tend to produce less stomach acid. Young people usually produce enough. As you get older, you produce less. And by supplementing with this supplement, the Biogest, it's ACL, hydrochloric acid, is a great way. You have to take it with a meal. You don't just take it randomly. It helps you break down the food and digest better. And magically, you see people's reflux go away because it helps just break down their food, which they weren't doing before. It can be taken potentially in place of medication, but... I'll let, you know, work with a practitioner if you're going to try anything like that. Uh, digestive bitters is something I suggest to people all the time. They're just herbs that we found out in both Europe and in China. Chinese medicine. Both came to the same discovery that if you have bitter herbs during a meal or after a meal, you digest better. European people do it. Chinese people do it. There must be something to it. It's an old practice. We all that discovered that if you have some digestive herbs after you eat, you have better look, uh, glycemic reactions, so sugars are going to be improved. Uh, the way your motility, your, your digestive movement is going to be improved, and just better digestion. So it's a simple thing. This is a company that makes a good one. There's lots of them out there. Uh, if you find you don't have great digestion, bitters is a simple, easy one. Um, if you have a little bit worse digestion, then what we just mentioned, this uh, product designed by Health Concerns is a great one. That has enzymes and Chinese herbs. You could also try Quiet Digestion by the same company. Pretty much the same thing, but without the enzymes. I like them both. I always have uh, one of those in my cabinet, especially if I overeat. I instantly feel way better after overeating or have a heavy meal or maybe drinking or fatty food. It just helps you digest uh, very easy. Uh, the herbs in there are very, on, very much on the safe side. I'm not concerned about them. Uh, if you really don't want to go that route, just taking fresh ginger and slicing it up, boiling it, making a spicy tea after a meal has a similar effect. It's not going to be as strong as the herbs that I just mentioned, but it works. Uh, you can throw some cardamom in there too, some cinnamon, you could have your own little easy at home digestive tea, very simple. Uh, one thing 
for people who aren't vegetarian is to have bone broths. Uh, bone broths with meals are an easy way to include in your meals, in your digestive health. And because bone broth, either bought or homemade, has a lot of glutamine and glycine, and that really helps cool down a lot of the inflammation. Let's say you had a lot of a reflux, GERD, acid issues. Bone broth is one of the best ways, if you have it frequently in, in meals, to really just cool everything down. That glutamine that's in the, in the bone broth really quiets down inflammation in the esophagus. Yeah. Can you just talk about the difference between, we'll say, the, the structural components of and the with regards to inflammation of bone broth and organ meat versus muscle meat. I, I think that that's oh, worth touching on if you weren't going to speak oh, about yeah, it. That's great. Well, simply put, um, we have, I guess, understandably moved towards muscle meat as our main source of meat when we talk about eating meat, right? Uh, you don't see people frequently anyway eating liver or heart or kidney or things like that. Maybe in other countries more so for sure, but in the United States, it's not, unless you, maybe you see liver on a, in a, rest, a fancy restaurant, but organ meat has pretty much been eliminated. And then also like tendons, ligaments, and other parts of the animal has been, for the most part, eliminated. So there's certain amino acids that are in organs and ligaments and skin of animals that we've kind of eliminated, and we're just only eating the protein that's in muscle meat. And so this is throwing off uh, potentially the health aspect of meat. So it's theorized that some of the reasons why we see more colorectal cancer with people who eat high meat diets is because the type of protein that's in muscle meat is called methionine is too hot. We have too much of that methionine because of the muscle meat and not enough the glutamine, the glycine especially. Glycine is kind of against methionine. They work against each other and it's protective. It may protect you from getting cancer. It may protect you from inflammation. Uh, it's just a missing component and bone broth solves that issue. But, you know, if you want to eat muscle meat, I'm certainly fine with that too. Uh, you do get a little glycine from eating skin of animals, but not in really high amounts compared to the muscle meat that we eat. Does that sound right? Yeah, Good. thank you so much. Yeah, so then uh, lastly, probiotics. These are the two that I like a lot. Uh, microbiome labs, those I believe are only prescribed through a practitioner but you can get designed by health probiotics. They have a really nice line of probiotics that you can get on Amazon. Um, I, I would recommend people take probiotics periodically, don't take them all the time, and especially don't take the exact same probiotic all the time because you wanna periodically mix up the different strains of bacteria that are in probiotics. So quickly, Probiotics have different bacteria in them, and you want to have a, a variety of different bacteria. You don't need to always have the exact same lactobacillus constantly, the same strain all the time. You want to mix it up a little bit. Hey, Peter, talk us through a little bit. You've kind of laid out a bit of a game plan throughout this presentation. So 
I'll kind of start you on the track and then you tell me what order you put these in, but you have elimination diets. Yeah. You talk about balancing the microbiome via probiotics. You talk about reintroduction as well. How do you actually look at that as taking people through the entire, um, the entire process with you? Well, I mean, I usually, uh, I don't have like a one step, one, two, three step thing. It really does depend on what their symptoms are and what their issues are. So I, I would hope people listening today would have heard something relevant that they'd want to try because they, it might have sparked some interest in something that they might have going on. So if I was talking something about like say constipation, like maybe I want to look into that. Um, if I, you know, so, you know, does that make sense? I, but yeah, I, I wouldn't hesitate for anyone to try a whole 30 diet, you know, just try it. Uh, I don't, that's not an extreme elimination diet. For me, it's a really good thing everyone should just at some point try and start reintroducing food and see how they feel just to have a sense. You don't have to have a major problem. Maybe you'll discover you can eat dairy. Maybe you can discover you can't eat dairy. Uh, you know, maybe wheat wasn't as big a problem as you thought it was. Um, but there isn't really a one, two, three punch. It's really starting at some of these basic spots and you know if you hear hear me speaking about anything that rings particularly to you i would start on those areas yeah so uh you know we talked about last time a prevention guide if anyone's still interested there's a covid 19 prevention guide you could email steve right if they want to get a hold of that yeah you just go to our website click on webinars and it's right there too just scroll to the bottom and buy it and then you yeah. That's my two cents. So I will, we're still going to have some time. I, I'm not upset that this went a little bit long. There was very important information all along the way. We'll still do a Q&A at the end, but I just kind of want you to take away some general broad sweeping approaches from um, this presentation. So the first thing that you kind of want to do when talking about diet is think about inflammation first. Now we can talk about direct inflammation and we can talk about indirect inflammation and we'll we'll just go into those gently in a second. The next thing is make it an experiment. I think Peter said this a hundred times, but everyone is different. You're not going to be able to read some book, find some article that's just going to say, this is exactly what you need to do and have that be right for everyone who's reading it. So let's not even pretend like that could possibly be the case. And the third thing is to listen to your body. Yeah, Steve and I have totally different diets, right? What is that? Right, Steve? We both have very different diets. Oh, you and I have very different diets. Yeah, so it's okay. We're both yeah. healthy. It's the process. Yeah, exactly. And so listening to your body is the most important thing. So the first thing that we can just kind of talk about just in general is inflammation. And these are things that would more directly cause an inflammatory response in the body. And we'll talk about indirect in a second. Indirect is more through the balance of the bacteria in the small intestine or in the large intestine in that microbiome. So just in general, and this is piggybacking off of what 
Peter said about the whole 30. And that's no surprise because this is involved. This is from Dr. Ruscio's book that we were talking about before. And in his book, he cites the whole 30 as a great place to start for a paleolithic diet. Just looking at this is just dropping out your gluten, your dairy and your soy. That's a reasonable place to just start at things that could be directly giving you inflammation in your body. Your body just may not respond to those substances all that well. Then you can look at through the rest of it, eggs and nuts and higher carb intake. That's somewhere in the middle. And then things that are tolerated pretty well, again, as far as your immune system attacking your body by these just being in your body, yeah. gluten-free grains, potatoes, sweet potatoes, nightshades, beans, and legumes. So yeah. that's a reasonable place to just look at as globally, whether your body will look at what you're putting into it as friend or foe on a direct level. The next thing is more the indirect bounce. Um, you have, as we discussed, bacteria in your body. If that balance is out of whack, meaning that the bad bacteria have become greater than the good bacteria, your immune system will be constantly looking at that as a source of something that it should attack. Now, if that bad bacteria grows to a point where it's overgrown more than the good bacteria, your immune system will constantly be trying to attack that. Therefore, you will be creating an immune response in your body, which will create an autoimmune scenario in your body. So the two different ways to think are, is what I'm eating right now causing my immune system to give me trouble? Or is what I'm eating right now feeding that bad bacteria, which will cause my immune system to constantly be attacking that poor, that bacteria, which will cause your body to be in a constant state of inflammation? Talk to me. Yeah, so one thing just quickly that throws off a lot of my patients when they do, this is a FODMAP diet that you're looking at. Uh, what throws off people is they start looking at lists online about FODMAP diets and they look at one list and they're like, wait, this food is on this list, but it's not on this list over here. And then I go over this list. It is on this list. And you see a lot of FODMAP diet lists that may have a little contradictory information. Don't worry about it. The foods that are, are kind of on both lists most likely are moderate foods. The ones that are on everyone's list are the high FODMAPs and the low FODMAP diets. So don't get too caught up in, oh, wait, can I eat this? If, we're not, if you're not sure, either just figure it's probably okay or go to the, the Monash uh, University app and they'll be much more specific. But just to be clear, I notice a lot of patients mention that. Yeah, and just to kind of, I'm going to pull this out, but I mean, it is nice that they have a really good guide through here. And each food, I'm just going to pick some random thing right here. But they tell you, depending on the serving size, what it can end up being. So that's where a lot of you can get down in the weeds with this. Um, and they are really the expert on that. So if you go on our website, you'll find some FODMAP resources well directly from them. But again, just to kind of go through here, like your cauliflowers, your garlic and your onions come up all the time, your cabbage for sure. Um, those are the, the main, main ones. But look, look through these lists and then 
kind of see where you think you want to land. But again, look for broad sweeping strokes with that. Um, same thing here. This just continued. But um, even just like to kind of highlight a little bit is like cashews and pistachios are different from macadamia nuts, peanuts, pumpkin seeds. Um, that to me is a perfect example of this like um, kind of feeling a little bit lost with your diet. Like these things seem to offend me, but these don't. And who would ever possibly think that a cashew and a macadamia night would be any different to your body, frankly, but there are subtle differences in foods. Yeah, yeah. The next thing is kind of just make it an experiment. This is just, again, right on our website and is just taking you through the beginning of his protocol for an elimination diet. So the first thing you want to do is just give everything a rest. Do a two to four day broth cleanse. Now that can be either the vegetarian broth, which is that uh, lemon, ginger, cayenne, and um, high quality grade A maple syrup, or it can be that bone broth. But just give everything a rest for a little bit of a while. Get to two days for sure. If you're feeling good, go to four days, see where you land on that. Then the next thing is just go and eliminate the things that cause a direct amount of inflammation in your body, which is again, those things that are your grains, your dairy, your legumes, your alcohol. Those are the things, just pull them out and see whether your body seems to feel any better with it. It's really important to rec to get to an answer of a yes, as it's really important to get to an answer of a no. If that's a no, now we take those and put them on the shelf and saying, you know what? None of those foods really seem to be problematic. So let's just put that on the bench for a little while and not be more restrictive in our diet than we need to be. So as you can see, if you felt better, then you're going to go through and try more the indirect approach, which is the low FODMAP, keeping out those things that seem to bother you. So that's that paleo low FODMAP. That's attacking it at a direct and an indirect level of inflammation. But if you felt no change, don't waste your time nor your energy nor being in too restrictive. Give everything back that was on the paleo diet just look at the things that are fermentable. Just look at the balance of your small and large intestine bacteria. Just look at your microbiome to try and get that back into regulation. So that's kind of the beginning of it is just to treat it as an experiment. There's no good or bad information. It's the same thing as when I'm working with a patient and it comes out that they can't extend all the way through their middle back and their shoulders bother them. That's not bad or good in nature. It's just information that's gonna help us get to analyzing the data to get us towards a solution a little bit faster. So listen to your body. This is a direct quote from Mike, Michael Ruscio. The most powerful thing you can do is listen to your body and stop listening to everyone else. Um, I think it's kind of like a, a little bit, it, I, I, I think it's, um, it sounds a little bit ironic, but the thing that I'm telling you to listen to me about is to do the experiment. It's not to go online and find experts that are telling you. Um, it should be a process, not a direct um prescription for anyone and, and really listen to your body along the way. But then I think Peter did a great job of talking about how your body can also give you perhaps information that's not really useful at the time by hormonal problems, meaning that your insulin, your leptin and your ghrelin can be giving you 
your body can be giving you information, I'm hungry, but that's not obviously something that you should be listening to. So I can understand how this can be a little bit confusing, but this is what you really want to listen to is that your let's say that your gut, your your bloating, your bowel issues, your reflux, your mental state, anxiety, depression, your fatigue, your joint problems, your thyroid, skin issues are huge with this. That's what you want to listen to. It's not whether your body is saying, oh, I really want a snack right now, or oh, I really want that McFlurry right now. That could be because your hormones have been manipulated and because your hormone balance has been for long enough in a place that it's not really giving you clear signals. When we say listen to your body, this is what we're talking about. Listen to your bloating, to your bowel, to your reflux, and your mental state, along with just the way that your body feels. That's what we're talking about when we say listen to your body. Uh, well, I've, I've definitely spoken enough. I hope that, I mean, thanks for everybody sticking around and, you know, listening to both of us go on and on. But if you have any questions, I can drop them in. Let's make this a really comprehensive thing. Um, yeah, if there's any there questions, anything that even personal right now, feel free. You have the floor. All right. I don't see too much. Do you see any questions, Steve? I don't see any right right now, but usually they end up trickling in. Um, I think everyone's asleep right now. That's yeah, funny. no, that's totally fair. But they were kind enough to leave themselves uh, on so that we didn't feel bad about ourselves. Uh, we hope that this answered a bunch of your questions. Um, feel free to go on the Integrated Health Sciences under Eight Foundations of Health. There's even more information there, um, talking about hydration as well. Hydration is a beautiful thing where eating your hydration can be so important, meaning through fruits and vegetables. But as we discussed, if there perhaps isn't a great balance in your microbiome, it can throw you into problems there. So there's, you know, you really have to look at things as a unit, as a whole, but hopefully don't become overwhelmed and try and bite off more than you can chew. That's our lecture. We hope that you really enjoyed it. We'll be doing more of these, so just keep in touch. And this is Peter and myself signing off. Have a great day, beautiful people. Later. Thank you.